0: As the kids are making their way out for a time of worship, I'd like to encourage you to please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 13, continuing this series on the life of Abraham, thinking about our journey of faith. Abraham is a model of us for what it means to be made righteous by faith, but he also serves as a model of what faithfulness looks like in all the ups and downs of life, even in the moments of life. When your faith is tested, and you can count on it, your faith will be tested at times. I'm going to read this entire chapter, verses 1 through 18 of Genesis 13, because it tells the story of a specific test that came to Abraham. Hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. And Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, Then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. You know, you learn at a very early age that along with school come tests. It happens. And you also learn that in school there are a variety of types of tests. Always liked multiple choice because I had a one in four shot of getting the right answer. True and false was even better. Hey, I got a 50 50 chance. Essay questions, if you hadn't studied, oh, not good. A variety of ways that test come. Same is true in our walk with the Lord. In this life, you and I, believer, are going to face a variety of tests. Now, we've already seen last week in Genesis chapter 12 how Abram t- faced the test of adversity. There was a famine in the land, and he ended up in Egypt, and things didn't go well. Abram failed this test because in the midst of adversity, in the midst of saving his own neck, he chose to lie, and he ended up being kicked out of the country because of that. And now a second test comes in Genesis 13. It's a test that we wouldn't expect. Because it's the test of prosperity. Now Abram had returned to Canaan. You look at verse 1 and it clearly lays out the path he took in coming out of Egypt back into the Negeb, And then eventually in verse 3 it tells us he goes back to Bethel. And notice what is emphasized in verse 3. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning. And then in verse 4 it tells us to the place where he had made an altar at the first. This is Abram returning home. The word Bethel literally means house of God. This is Abram returning back to God. And when he returns, when he repents, when he takes that journey to return to the God of his fathers, he worships. That's what occurs in in verse 4. And notice that this this narrative of this test begins with worship in verse 4. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And where does it end in verse 18? He builds an altar to the Lord. Abram's life had been transformed by his failures in Egypt so that he returns to the Lord. And the one characteristic of his life now is worship. So I want to begin this message where many messages end. And that is a call to come back home. Abraham teaches us that no matter how far you've gone from God, you can come home. No matter how bad you believe your failure is, you can come back to God. God is not done with you. He has not turned his back on you. He is offering you the chance to come back home and to return to walking with him I always loved hearing my father, as he got older, tell stories of growing up and his years in the Air Force. He had to wait till I was a lot older to tell me some of his Air Force years, if you know what I mean. But he loved telling me the story of when he was discharged from the Air Force. See, my father grew up dirt poor grew up in a house that until several years ago used to stand unfortunately it had to be torn down because it was falling apart it was the old clapboard house with a big front porch that if you saw it you would expect a hound dog to be laying on the front of it that's where he grew up because they were poor they didn't have a telephone so my grandparents didn't know that dad had been discharged it happened quickly took a bus from Knoxville down to Athens, and he walked the final seven miles home and got to his house in the wee hours of the morning. Nobody was up. Dad said he would never forget it when he took that first step on the porch and it began to creak, and he took his second step and his third step walking toward the front door when from inside he heard his mom's voice go, Arnold's home! How she knew it was him dad said he would never know but from the very footsteps he knew she knew that her son had come home and he said before he could get to the door that screen door flew open and his mom came out and picked him up and yeah picked him up he was six two picked him up and hugged him and said welcome home church that's our god He hears those initial steps and he is quick to greet you, not with a finger saying, how could you have done what you did? But with arms open wide, welcoming you home. So today, if you find yourself wandering from God in Egypt, come back home. Come back home because God is gracious. And God's graciousness was shown to Abraham, not only in that he was welcomed back to worship him, but notice when he comes back out of Egypt, God has blessed him materially. Verse 2, it's very clear. Abraham was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold, that God's grace extended to providing even more than Abraham needed. And then came the second test. Prosperity. In many ways, this is a more difficult test than adversity. You see, in adversity, you expect to be tried. Tish Warren Harrison says in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, that our theologies prepare us to to suffer adverse circumstances in midst of trials. She talks about serving as a missionary in a war-torn country where she went expecting deprivation. She was ready for it, but then she says the most challenging aspect, however, was not the trial of my faith in adversity, but the trial of my faith in comfort. You see, in adversity, we know we need God. In the famine, we know we need God to intervene. But when things are going well, do you still recognize you need God? See, testing came in prosperity because look what happens in verses 5 through 7. Lot, who by the way had also been blessed because of Abraham, because Lot, his nephew, has herds and flocks and tents, meaning he owned many possessions, and they were so wealthy the land could not support both Abram and Lot. Their herdsmen, their managers were fighting. It was a lush valley, but it wasn't lush enough for both of them. There was plenty of water, but not enough for both herds. So something had to give. So Abram comes to Lot, and he says, listen, let's don't fight. We're kinsmen. Lot, you choose. If you go to the the left, I'll go to the right. If you go north, I'll go south. We'll separate because it's not worth us being divided. That was amazing. Abraham passed this test. There are three things that we see in Abram's life about the way he passed the test of prosperity. Things that you and I need when the test comes to us in the midst of our comfort and ease. And the first is this trust in God even when things are at ease. Our trust in God may never, should never waver. Now, previously, Abram had trusted his schemes. That's what happened in Egypt. He developed the scheme. Sarah, tell Pharaoh you're my sister so they won't kill me. He had a plan, and that plan caused him to fall flat on his face. But notice now, there's no schemes. There's no plans. This is Abram simply saying, God, I will trust you. And this trust gets an extra element because, remember, Abram had been promised already at the beginning of chapter 12 that he would be the father of a great nation. Many descendants, but here's the problem. He has no children. This is where Lot figures in prominently. You need to ask yourself as you read this part of the narrative, why does Lot take such a preeminent role? Lot is Abram's nephew. Abram's brother Haran had died, and Abram's raising his nephew. So the idea is this if Abram and Sarah never have any children, guess how God's promise will be fulfilled? Through Lot. Lot's children will become Abram's children. And that's how God could fulfill the promise. But now here's Abram saying, my hope of the promise being fulfilled, God, I'm letting him go. Separate, Lord, I'm going to trust you to fulfill the promise. That's why he says in verse 8 that we are kinsmen. That word is literally brothers. Lord, I'm going to trust you. Lot could be the only hope of you fulfilling your promise, God, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to let him go. In the midst of your prosperity, in the midst of your comfort, will you still trust God when you're faced with the risk of losing it? Trust him to say, Lord, it is your word that I will believe in. The other aspect is generosity. Abraham showed trust in God when he let Lot make the first choice but he was also being very generous because notice Abram says I will abide by what you choose. Abram did not have to do that. According to the custom at the time Abram was the patriarch. He was the leader. He had first choice as the patriarch but here's Abram being generous saying Lot you get first choice. You choose, and I will abide by that choice. It is the generosity to trust God because Abram knew something we must remember. You can never outgive God. Our generosity reflects the fact that we believe in a God who is generous and we can never, ever outgive what God can give. That if we will trust Him and even sacrificially give and to recognize the freedom that comes in that, that God is gracious. The story is told of a long time ago, a mother who would visit a, a market, a small market. And this market was known by the manager who had this huge jar of Skittles. And whenever a child would come in, he would get the jar down and say, go ahead, let, let your child take some Skittles. A hand, just reach in and grab a handful because we know nothing makes shopping easier than a kid hopped up on sugar. This mother walked in with her little boy manager gets the jar down and says, son, go ahead, get get a big handful of Skittles. And the little boy says, no, sir, no, thank you. Don't you want any? Yes, I'd like some, but I don't want to reach my hand in there. So the manager says, well, I'll get you some. Reaches in, grabs a big handful of Skittles so big, the little boy has to hold out both hands to hold all the Skittles. Now, the mother was puzzled at this because she knew her little boy was not shy, especially about candy. So as they're walking away and the little boy is getting a mouthful of Skittles, she says, What's going on? Why, why didn't you want to reach in there? And she, he said, Mom, he's got a much bigger hand than I do. God has big hands. You want to know how to be free from greed? Be generous. That was Abraham's test here. He could have said, I want more. I'm going to take first choice. But I'm going to trust God because God has big hands. Trust Him. Be generous. And also live humbly. I've already mentioned that Abram was in the leadership position, he was the patriarch. But yet, he let Lot take the lead. Abram did not have to have his own way, he was really free. See, how much of our anxiety and anger is caused by the fact that we believe we have to have our own way? That if I don't get what I want, then I become angry. How much of our frustration is due to our own selfishness? If I don't get what I want, then I get mad. I don't know if you all have ever had the experience of God's conviction hitting you in the kitchen. But it seems to happen to me very frequently. Happened just a week or two ago. When in a moment, in the most unexpected way, the wickedness of my heart was revealed. I'm not exaggerating. I'd gone to the refrigerator. I think I was looking for ketchup. Open the refrigerator door, and I don't see the ketchup readily. <sighs> Where's the ketchup? I can't find anything in this refrigerator, and I'm getting stuff out. And I'm setting on Where is the ketchup? There's just too much stuff in this refrigerator. I can't find the ketchup. And then it hit me. I'm mad because we have a full refrigerator. Talk about wickedness. There are people starving, and Mark Herod's mad because he can't find the ketchup in a full refrigerator. I had worship right there, and I said, God, forgive me. Because that's wrong. That was letting my desires determine my attitude in the midst of plenty. Humility and gratitude go hand in hand. To say, Lord, I am grateful for what you've given me. Now I will humble myself and I will trust you to supply what I need. And you know what? That's freedom. Some of us need to know the freedom of not getting our way. To say, it's okay. If I don't get what I want, I'm fine. I will what? Trust God. Trust, generosity, and humility. Abram did well in this test. But Lot, not so well. Verses 10 through 13 show us Lot's failure. In fact, the people who first read this already knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Lot's choice, we start getting a little bit of foreshadowing to a memory. Look at the end of verse 12, or verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You see, as Lot looked out on whatever plateau they were on, he looked to where Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities were in the Jordan Rift Valley. And it was green and lush. In fact, we see in verse 10, it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like Eden. And like the land of Egypt. It was beautiful to the eye. And that was the danger. Notice verse 10 begins with, he lifted up his eyes and saw. Those words so far in the Genesis narrative signal a decision that is about to have negative consequences. Because there are other times where similar phraseology is used to indicate that a person is acting based on desire and not seeking God. One of the first places is in Genesis chapter 3. God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden. And he told them, everything in this garden is yours. Enjoy it, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know how you think about this, but I think some people get in their mind that this tree, this fruit on it was magical in some way. That the moment they ate it, and boom, they would have this, this magical ability now to know right or wrong. I would submit to you that the moment God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit, they had the knowledge of good and evil. At that point, Eve knew what was right and what was wrong. What was right, don't eat of the tree. What is wrong, eating of the tree. The issue of the tree is, Obedience. It was that boundary. That's why after she ate it, she experienced the consequences of choosing wrongly. Shame, the realization that she was naked, that they were naked before God. the realization that now death was in the world. They had the knowledge of good and evil when God gave the command. So why did she disobey the command? Why did Adam look up on the screen when the woman saw that the tree was good? that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired. It came down to the issue of desire. Wanting something. And in that moment of desire, will you trust God or will you go your own way? That was the test. There's another place where this same phraseology is used in Genesis 6, 1 through 2. This is a highly debated passage as to exactly who the sons of God are. It's not my point today to dive into that, but to point out they acted on desire. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 3 talks about how this displeased God. It's that word saw. They desired. They wanted. We are conditioned now to believe that any desire we have, we should seek to fulfill. In fact, when it comes to the area of sexual ethics, sexual behavior, our culture conditions us to think that we must give in to our desires, that to do not do so leads to problems and damaged egos and damaged personalities. But church, we must realize that not all desires are godly in and of themselves. Our desires have been tainted by the fall and are conditioned by the world. Sometimes the worst thing we can do is to give in to our desires. But we're conditioned. The Journal of um, Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine did a survey, a test several years ago. They would prepare food, same food. They would pair one plate of, of chicken strips and another plate of chicken strips, same thing. They would present one plate just as it is with the chicken strips on it, but the other where they would take the same chicken strips, wrap it in McDonald's wrapping paper and present it to the children. And every time the kids said the McDonald's one tasted better. They did this with vegetables. With milk, with fruit, same thing. But the wrapping on it was always McDonald's and the kids always came back and said, that one tastes better. Why? There's a conditioning that takes place. And that is the same conditioning that is coming upon us today that says, if you desire something, especially in the sexual realm, give in to that desire. But God says, No. You know, when pilots are trained to fly, they are taught that if they enter bad weather, they should not rely on their senses. Because they will often experience spatial dislocation where they think down is up and up is down. And they're told, "Don't trust your senses, fly by the instruments." Same is true for us. We have to recognize that we cannot trust our desires. We must fly by the book. Because God has told us what is right. That is why he has not left us on our own when it comes to the issue of desires. Galatians 5 contains the fruit of the Spirit. And there are parts of the fruit of the Spirit that are not surprising to us. So, for example, when the Spirit dwells in you, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, amen. Self-control? Doesn't that seem a little bit, I don't know, out of place? gentleness fruit self you know why self-control is there so we won't do the same thing adam and eve did that we won't live based on desires but we will submit those desires to the spirit and the spirit gives us self-control to say no to those desires because when we live by desires just like lot did it will have consequences that will always take us further than we ever planned to go Later on, we're going to get to what happened to Lot. It wasn't good. You already see a precursor of it. place, the city where Lot moves, is destroyed because of their sin. What he desired led to death and further alienation from God. But look what happened with Abram. Notice in verse 14. The Lord speaks to Abram, and notice how the writer of Genesis draws this to our attention after Lot had separated from him. It's almost as if Abram's saying, all right, Lord, I'm trusting you. He got the good area. I'm going to this rocky stuff over here. Lord, it's in your hands. And God says to Abram, trust me. Abram, you go and you look, and as far as you can see to the north, south, east, and west, it's yours. It's yours. You go and you walk this land, Abram. It's yours. You see, God tells us that eye has not seen nor ear heard what He's prepared for His people. Trust Him. When you make that difficult decision to say, Lord, I'm not going to give in to desires, I'm going to trust You, God will be faithful. In the test of prosperity, will we choose comfort or Christ? Because at the moment in prosperity, there will always become a crisis of faith where you have to decide. Fred Craddock was a master storyteller and preacher. In fact, he spent most of his ministry in Tennessee. And he tells a story of a church he was pastoring that a little girl, seven years old, would always be dropped off by her parents. Like clockwork, they would pull up in the circle drive, drop off their seven-year-old for Sunday school, then come back either after Sunday school or sometimes they'd let her stay for worship. See, the child's parents were part of a group that had moved into the town because of a chemical plant. They'd moved from New Jersey, moved down to establish a new life. But this family was known not only for just moving in from the north, but they were also known for the parties they would throw. Now, these weren't these normal parties, just, you know, drunken debauchery. These were parties that were planned by the couple to help them climb the social ladder because they would always invite the people above them, their managers, their bosses. And they saw it as a way to become, be upwardly mobile. One Sunday morning, Pastor Craddock got in the pulpit and he looked out at the congregation and he saw the seven-year-old girl kind of seated toward the back and he thought, oh, she's got two of her friends with her. And as he looked more closely, he noticed that it was the girl and her parents. He was even more surprised that when he gave the invitation that morning, mom and dad walked the aisle to become followers of Jesus Christ. After the service, he was talking with them and said, what changed? And the dad said, well, you know, pastor, I'm sure you've heard of the parties that we throw. He said, I have. He said, well, last night we had thrown a party got a little crazy a little wild they were just drinking and people had gotten loud and we woke up our seven-year-old daughter she came down the steps and stood on the third step and people kind of noticed that she was standing there and they looked at her and then out of nowhere our daughter said to us all look at all the food let's ask God to bless it God is great God is good let's thank him for our food amen and then turned around and went back upstairs He said, within two minutes, the first couple left. And within five minutes, others were saying, well, we we need to go now. Within ten minutes, it was just me and my wife in the house. We started picking up the mess. We both had big garbage bags full of garbage. And we actually met at the trash can with these bags of garbage. And I looked at my wife, and she looked at me. And I said to her, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And it was that moment of crisis in their prosperity where they recognized Christ is what you need. So today I ask you, whether you're in adversity or prosperity, do you know that Jesus is what you need? Neither one will last forever, but Jesus will. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. If you have a question about what it means to follow Jesus, I'll be here at the front and we'll be glad to talk with you after this service about what it means to follow him. You may need to come and pray. You may be that one that needs to step on God's front porch and say, Lord, I'm coming home and allow him to meet you and experience a renewal of his love. You may be at the point today where you've given in to desires and you recognize that that was not what God would have you to do. Please understand His grace is sufficient. And even in the struggle, He is faithful. Trust Him. Father, You know our hearts and You know how we are tested. You know how adversity tries our faith and You know how prosperity can make us complacent. So Lord, I ask You in all things, help us. To keep our focus on you. So that our vision is on you. Whether the times be good or bad. Whether we are tested or tried. We can say you are our focus. Grant this Father I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.